Um, what I will tell you is that I don't take attendance, although I we notice these things, and this is not a class where um, it's not obvious if people don't show up. Um, so you should try to show up. Um, it's just one of many ways that you want to um, be treated charitably in um, the assessment of your work. Um, there is no, as you all know, as you've all complained about all your lives, we can't give you objective assessments. We try, we fail. Um, so what we tend to do is um, um, be honest to our sense of you when we do grades and things like that. Um, we try to get good senses of you. We try to be honest to our sense of you. Um, but the way to give us, and by us, I'm not just using the royal we, um, the way to give um, teachers um, uh, a good sense of you is to be present. So there's no class participation required, and in fact, I don't take attendance. Um, and if you miss classes for whatever reason, I will give you a link to the podcast, and if you want to go over stuff, you can do it that way. That said, I strongly recommend that you come to classes and that you participate. Um, what there will be in this class is two papers and a final. Um, the papers will be five to seven pages each. Um, I'm going to say six to eight. Um, that is, I don't want them to be like on page three and a half as a rough approximation of five. Um, so let's say six to eight pages each. One of them, the second one, you can substitute a pretty um, uh, stringent memorization for. Um, so if you would, if you like memorizing, and maybe even better if you don't like memorizing, um, there is a particular poem, a long poem, a serious poem, um, that you can memorize instead of doing the second paper, and then either recite it in class, which people rarely want to do, but occasionally they do, um, or come to my office to recite it there. So that's something you don't have to decide yet. Um, but people who have done that memorization, it's, it's uh, Shelley's poem, The Triumph of Light, and people who have done that memorization decades later are still happy that they've done it. Um, and there are not many papers you're going to write that decades later you're going to say, man, I nailed that paper. Um, so it's good to write papers, but one reason that it's good to write papers for English classes is um, that it's a way to get you thinking hard, thinking deeply. Um, about something. Memorization works the same way. Um, and it may even, if you're not doing it all the time, if there are only a few things that you memorize or only one thing that you memorize um, in your university career, um, it may have much more value than um, the average paper that you write. Um, so that's a possibility. It's also something where you can know going in that you're going to get an A. Um, that is not, I'm not telling you that you're going to get an A. I'm, I'm saying that you can know in advance whether you've done it well enough that you'll get an A. And what well enough means is pretty much um, line perfect. Um, people make mistakes, they substitute words. Um, I will prompt you, and the prompts, um, you know, so if, so if you forget something, it's not, oh, no, I forgot it, that's it. If you've memorized it, you'll get an A. Um, and the way you can demonstrate you've memorized it doesn't require absolute fluency. Um, what it requires is that it's clear by the time you're done that you've memorized it, even if you forget a line and I have to remind you what it is and so on. But if you can pick up, you guys have all done memorization at some point, right? No, never? 
grade school. Grade school, yeah. Um, has anyone never done memorization as an assignment? You never have. Really? No. Um, okay, well. Uh, no, but it's no problem. Okay, how do you know it's no problem? Have you ever been in a play? Uh, no, just because I tend to memorize when I study. Okay, so that's great. Yeah, so, the, so one feature of this, one good thing, is that you can know um, that you can know if you want that you'll get an A on that. Um, it's really hard for me not to give you an A if it's clear that you've done the memorization. Um, so basically, those are the requirements, are the two papers and a final, um, or one paper, the first paper of memorization and the final. Um, so that, those are the nuts and bolts. Um, what I want to ask you before I figure out uh, syllabus is, first of all, has anyone who in this class has taken some course in Romanticism before? Um, what did you take, Tang? Uh, I took uh, Professor Quinn's, it was sort of a survey, mm -hmm. uh, sophomore year. Okay, and that was all six of the? Uh, all six plus major prose writers plus Frank Sen. All right, so, so you read a lot. Um, okay. There's not a lot of any particular one. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, this is more, um, basically, the English, the great English Romantic poets fall into two groupings. Um, the earlier Romantics, which is English 125A, and the later Romantics, which is English 125B. Um, those groupings are kind of elegantly chronological, but not perfectly so. But the, basically the first of, the oldest of the earlier generation of romantics is William Blake. Um, how many people have read any Blake? Um, Songs of Innocence and of Experience, stuff like The Tiger and, and A Rose Thou Art Sick, things like that. <coughs> uh, has anyone read any of his prophetic books? Um, what, do you remember what you read? Uh, it was, um, was that the sort of parody of Paradise Lost? Well, the there's book of, what's that? the Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Yeah, we read part of it. Okay, or the Book of Urizen. Yeah, that yeah, that's a, that's sort of parody of Paradise Lost. He also has an extremely difficult epic poem called Milton, um, in which Milton is sort of the hero of that book, um, but it's Milton who's flying around from heaven to earth and going to other worlds, and it's kind of like. Abraham Lincoln vampire killer, except it's John Milton, and it has to do with Satan and God. Um, so um, he also wrote a book. So Blake is sort of most famous now for the Songs of Innocence and of Experience, and we may have occasion to talk a little bit about why that is. Um, but his most ambitious work, although the Songs of Innocence and of Experience are, are amazingly great poems, but his most ambitious work are these very strange epics um, in which figures like um, parodies of God and Satan and uh, various aspects of human selfhood um, engage in various kinds of epic battles. If anyone has seen Blade Runner, has anyone seen the movie Blade Runner? Um, Rutger Hauer, that is Roy, the um, most charismatic of the replicants in Blade Runner quotes from Blake's prophetic books um, several times in Blade Runner um, because the language is A, amazing, and B, sufficiently opaque that you're sort of blown away by the language without quite knowing and maybe without quite caring what it means. Um, 
burning with the fires of Orc, says Rutger Hauer. Fiery the angels fell, descended down from their thrones, burning with the fires of Orc. Um, and you, that's one of those times when someone quotes something and you think that's a great quotation. One day I'll read where that's from. Um, but the quotation itself is powerful but obscure, and part of its power is its obscurity. Um, halfway between the Songs of Innocence and of Experience, Blake wrote a book called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, which has a whole lot of different parts of it, um, including the very famous Proverbs of Hell, um, which are really wonderful. The roads of excess lead to the Palace of Wisdom is one of them. Um, or the horses of wrath are wiser than the tigers of instruction. So they're kind of the anti-Ben Franklin proverbs. These are proverbs which um, call for, in one very famous three-word proverb, enough or too much, better too much than just enough. Um, energy is eternal delight is another one of the famous ones. Um, so the Proverbs of Hell are anti-prudential. They're about going wild, living to um, the living in the most extreme way possible. They're pro-extremity because extremity is what vitality and life are. They're called the Proverbs of Hell as praise. The Proverbs of Heaven are be obedient and be good. That's essentially what you can um, imagine many of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs in the Bible to be saying, be obedient, be good. Um, the best of those Proverbs are wonderful um, from the book of, of Micah. Micha. Do you know Micha? Do you know in Hebrew? Um, he hath showed thee, O man, what is right, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Um, Blake would agree with some of that, certainly with loving mercy. Um, perhaps with doing justice, but in no way would he agree with walking humbly with thy God. Um, the Proverbs of Hell are pro-excess and pro-transcendence. You should try to transcend everything. You should try to enter into the realm of transcendence. Um, so Blake was born in 1757. He was pretty obscure as a poet in his own day, um, he died in 1827, so he was 70 years old when he died. Um, actually, I think he died before his birthday. I think he was 69 years old. He died in his 70th year. Um, and most of the other romantics didn't know his poetry, although he knew um, theirs. He certainly knew Wordsworth's, which he had very mixed feelings about. Most of the other romantics didn't know his poetry, and so he's a little bit of an outlier among the first generation of the great romantic poets. Those, that first generation is Blake, born 1757, Wordsworth, born 1770, and he lived till 1850. He lived to be 80 years old. And Coleridge, Wordsworth's closest friend for a long time, born 1772, and he died in the mid-1830s, 1834, I believe, but, I, but I'm not positive. Um, so the earlier romantics were revolutionary poets, revolutionary within poetry, and also in a lot of ways revolutionary politically. That is, they were in their youth pro the French Revolution. They thought that was an amazing thing that was happening. Um, Blake was pro the French Revolution. He was also pro the American Revolution. 
Um, one of his great books is the book called America, a Prophecy, in which he talks about um, the, the great mythological figures, Washington and Franklin and people like that. Um, except for Blake, as the earlier generation of romantics got older, they got more conservative. And um, they did what lots of people of, let's say, your parents' generation did, which is that they were part of a counterculture in their youth, part of a strongly radical counterculture. Um, but then what they felt was they learned that it wasn't so easy. They grew out of that. They became more conservative. The younger generation of romantics is, roughly speaking, about, comes about 20 years later. So the, so the three poets we'll be focusing on, this, on in this class is the younger generation of romantics. Those are Lord Byron, who was born in 1788. So he's 18 years younger than Wordsworth, 16 years younger than Coleridge, um, 31 years younger than Blake, but he didn't know from Blake. Um, Percy Shelley, who is Byron's best friend, um, who was born in 1792, and he died in 1822. So you have Byron, 1788 to 1823, um, Shelley, 1792 to 1822, and Keats, who is 1795 to 1821. So what you can see now is that the older Romantic poets were born a generation before the younger ones and outlived the younger ones. So. Wordsworth, the oldest, lived to be 80. Keats, who died youngest, died at 26. Um, so Wordsworth lived to be more than three times as old as Keats. The younger generation of Romantic poets are the ones who sort of um, wrote amazingly and flamed out and died young. Um, why did they die young? Well, Shelley drowned um, in an act of recklessness, which might be close to being regarded as suicide. Um, Keats died of tuberculosis and knew he was dying because he had medical training and had nursed his brother, who um, had TB, nursed his brother um, until his brother died, and then Keats recognized um, that he himself also had TB. Um, and Byron, who was a revolutionary, eventually died on a campaign for Greek independence. Um, he fought in the uh, Greek War of Independence um, and um, died of a fever in, um, in that campaign in the, um, due to exposure and um, um, uh, his body being challenged by exotic microbes and... and um, um, no hope for decent um, care that would get him through it. Um, it's very difficult to imagine Wordsworth or Coleridge um, fighting for independence for any country, going out into the field um, and fighting. It's very hard for them to imagine Wordsworth and Coleridge um, being as reckless, although Coleridge was reckless, being reckless in the way that Shelley and Byron were. Um, you might be able to imagine them describing, you probably could and rightly imagine them describing um, their own experience 
in ways that Keats does when Keats discovers um, that he's that he's not got long to live. Um, but the younger generation is very much the consistently revolutionary generation. And the older generation of romantics are those who started out as revolutionary, but except for Blake, um, gave up those revolutionary ideals for what they thought of, what they felt was realism. Um, do you think they for sure would have been consistently revolutionary, or do you think they would have sort of cut it out the way the others Well, what Karl Marx famously said, so I, I can give you an expert opinion on that. Um, Marx, who loved um, both Shelley and Byron, said that it is a tragedy for um, uh, human culture that Shelley died as young as he did, but not that Byron did. Um, because Byron died at 36, Shelley died just under 30, a month before his 30th birthday. Um, because everyone will, can recognize that Shelley would have remained revolutionary to the end, but we can also recognize that Byron would have um, um, reverted to his aristocratic roots and as he got older would have become more conservative and you know, started watching Downton Abbey or something. Um, so um, that question, would they have sustained their revolutionary impulses? I don't know that, that Marx is really fair to Byron in saying that. I mean, unfair to Byron, whatever, <laughs> depending on your own politics. Um, Byron was pretty um, amazing throughout, but personally, he did like his um, status, and he did like his... Um, his pleasures, and he did like to be thought very, very highly of. Um, Wordsworth wasn't, I mean, excuse me, not Wordsworth, Shelley um, didn't have Byron's vanity. Um, and Byron's vanity is part of what is really um, charismatic about him. It's not, oh, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, if you know that song. Um, but um, Byron's vanity really was part of his charisma um, but the problem with vanity which is based on charisma is that it um, is not a stable way of um, sustaining idealism and sustaining commitment. Vanity can fuel idealism and commitment um, idealism and commitment can give rise to vanity, and those two things can go together, but they don't go together in a way that lasts, and I think that's something like what Marx was um, was twigging to. Um, the Marxist critic Terry Eagleton, um, who is who is one of the is although he's not so much a Marxist anymore. Eh, he's kind of. Um, he's still a radical critic. So the radical critic, Terry Eagleton, um, wrote a song once um, which was called um, Milton, Blake, and Shelley. Um, and it was the praise of them as the three poets who were genuinely and um, eternally leftist. Um, that there are other poets who wrote lots of leftist poems, but it was Milton, Blake, and Shelley um, who were the real three. Which brings us to Milton. Um, so how many people have read any Milton? Um, okay, and so how many people have read any Paradise Lost? Uh, 
<laughs> it's the same. Wait, more people raise their hands for Paradise Lost than for Milton. Um, okay, so how many people, let the, I'll just ask it this way, how many people have read all of Paradise Lost? Um, raise them high. Okay, ready for your quiz? No. No. All right. How many people have read at least the first two books of Paradise Lost? Um, raise them high. Plus, at least the first two books. So if you've read all, I'm going to guess you also read the first two books. <laughs> or is this like Brandeis reading? Um, okay. Um, in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, Blake says of Milton that um, in a famous um, uh, comment about him, that the reason that Milton wrote in chains when he wrote of God and the unfallen angels, but wrote with freedom when he wrote of Satan and the fallen angels, was that he was a true poet and of the <coughs> devil's party without knowing it. So that is um, a very famous statement about Milton and about Paradise Lost, one which lots of people agree with, that he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. Um, and therefore, that, what Mil that, that Blake saw Milton as understanding that Satan was the hero of Paradise Lost. Um, if any of you have read His Dark Materials, the Philip Pullman um, trilogy, by the way, the Book of Dust he's now writing. Did you hear that? Um, yeah, he's, he's uh, just withdrawn from all public appearances in order to write volume four of his Dark Materials. So did you like it? I mean, I read it a long time ago. You should reread it. It's totally, yeah, utterly great. I probably great. would get a lot more out of it than what I did when I was in seventh grade. So <laughs> um, I mean, if I reread it, I'll probably read the fourth one because I don't remember all of it. Okay, well, good. It's, it's completely great. Um, the phrase, his Dark Materials, is from Paradise Lost. Um, the name of the trilogy as a trilogy is His Dark Materials. The phrase is from Paradise Lost. Um, His Dark Materials um, is essentially a retelling of Paradise Lost with Satan as clearly um, the hero, although an ambi a somewhat ambiguous or ambivalent hero, but nevertheless um, with Satan as clearly the hero. Um, in Paradise Lost, what happens is the poem begins with the results of Satan's failed rebellion against God. So the theological or biblical background to Paradise Lost is that Satan was supposedly the highest ranking of all the angels um, in God's heaven before the creation of the earth. But one day Satan thought the thought this is the simplest version of it. One day Satan thought the thought, I shall not serve. Non serviam. I shall not serve. I will not be obedient to God anymore. Um, and um, thinking that thought caused God to send him to hell. That Satan would think that thought cause God to send him to hell. If any of you have read Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, is it not familiar to anyone? You know who James Joyce is? You've read it or it's familiar to you? I read it. You, you read it in that. <laughs> you didn't like it way. In that I read it fast because what is this way? Like, I don't know. In high school, I read it. I don't remember. 
Okay. Well, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is about Stephen Dedalus, um, who stands in for James Joyce. And he is, um, he actually quotes a lot of Byron and Shelley in A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, so it is relevant. Um, he quotes Shelley's great line, which we uh, may come to today from his defense of poetry, that the mind in creation is as a fading coal that a tra the transitory gusts waken to, um, to, a f to fitful brightness. Um, I'm not quoting that right, obviously, but it's something like that. The mind of creation is like a fading coal awakened to fitful brightness by transitory winds. Um, so that what happens is you have an inspiration, and then that inspiration starts fading, and there are gusts of more inspiration, and that's how writing works. Stephen Dedalus loves that line. And um, Steve, the reason the book is called A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is it's a real writer. James Joyce, you know he's a real writer because he's published this book. Um, describing himself, the, the title, A Portrait of the Artist, means a self-portrait. That's the, that's the official um, term for what we call self-portraits, a portrait of the artist. Um, as a young man, so he's describing himself when he was a student, describing how it was that he became a writer. And at a crucial point, he says that the artist, like Satan, has to say, I shall not serve, non serviam. I am going to refuse simply to accept what authorities tell me about how things are. The artist is a rebel. And the idea that you would praise Satan's rebellion comes from Paradise Lost and in particular comes out of the romantic understanding of Paradise Lost. The understanding in Blake that Milton was of the Devil's Party without knowing it. The understanding in Shelley, who simply and easily, and as though no one would doubt this, refers to Satan as the hero of Paradise Lost. Like anyone can tell that Satan is the hero of Paradise Lost. So he makes this very radical claim. He makes it several times. Um, that Satan is the hero of Paradise Lost and God is the villain, is clearly the villain of Paradise Lost. Um, and that idea that the rebel who gets punished by being sent to hell, by being confined to hell, by being tortured with fires forever is the heroic figure in Paradise Lost and that God is a vicious tyrant. That's the romantic reading of Paradise Lost. So um, given that, I thought what we would do, um, this is one reason that I didn't bring a syllabus in yet, is I think what we'll do is we'll start by reading the first two books of Paradise Lost. And what I'll do is I'll put them on latte by tomorrow morning. Um, don't worry about reading it um, with notes, or don't worry about the stuff you don't understand. Um, the thing to do, especially if it's your first reading of Paradise Lost, is just let the language take you. And a lot of the language will be very, very clear, but some of it won't be. Um, but that's okay. Part of the point of poetry is that it's meter, it's rhythm, it's the propulsive force of the language, rather than simply its meaning that gets you interested in its meaning. Poetry affects you before you know what it means. 
Um, good poetry does. Good poetry should affect you before you know what it means. And then you may be committed to learning more and more about its meanings as a way of somehow being um, like the fading coal, attempting to hang on to the power of what's inspiring about it. Um, Shelley, at the end of the defense of poetry, which is where he says the mind of creation, is like a, is as a fading coal, which a fistful, which a fitful, and intransitory wind awakens. Oh, I almost have it. Um, um, yeah, it'll come back to me. Um, but but basically, which a fitful and and tra- and. Um, and transitory wind awakens to bursts of brightness, but it's not bursts of brightness. That that's how we respond to poetry. It's powerful until it isn't. But often we try to recover that power by thinking hard about its meanings. And what really good poetry will do is um, the more you think about it, the more you will be able to find um, more of those of those fitful gusts of transitory power. And there you might be tempted um, or, or desirous to go as deeply as you can into its meaning. Um, so what we'll do is read the first two books of Paradise Lost for Friday. Um, I'll also give you the very beginning of book three um, for reasons that I think will become clear when you read it. Um, and that will be a background for um, especially the thinking of the later romantics. Now, this brings up a question, which is there's actually an enormous amount of incredibly great poetry that we'll be reading in this class. Um, Frankenstein is on the syllabus. Um, how many people have read it? Um, okay, so the, so the question is, should we do it or not? Um, Frankenstein is prose, um, but Mary Shelley, who's married to Percy Shelley, is one of the later romantics. Um, they eloped. Um, they, she was part of um, everything that he did and pretty much everything that he and Byron did. They traveled to the same places and wrote about the same things. And Frankenstein, although those of you who haven't read it will know it as, you know, oh no, a monster. Um, what it's really about is a figure who is like Satan in Paradise Lost. Um, the monster actually compares himself to Satan. The monster teaches himself to read and teaches himself to speak. Um, he's extremely intelligent by reading Paradise Lost. Um, so in Frankenstein, you can see yet another version of the, the satanic hero, um, the hero as tortured, the hero as a rebel, the hero as being ranged by everyone on the side of evil. Um, in the story of Frankenstein. Frankenstein is, again, a kind of rewriting of Paradise Lost. So the question is, should we spend a week on Frankenstein, which would mean a week less on something else or not? Um, so two of you haven't read Frankenstein, and it's really, really worth reading. Um, how many people do want to do Frankenstein in this class? Uh, raise them high. I need to count. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, so that's the majority. Um, okay, so I'll get Frankenstein on the syllabus as well. Um, so, th- so those are basically uh, the things I wanted to figure out about the syllabus. 
Okay. Um, any questions? No? All clear? Good. Um, here are some sheets. You should get, have two sheets each. Um, trust they're all here. I'll send them around in two different directions. And um, how many people have ever read the intonations of? That's the first thing on um, one sheet. So, uh, okay. I the Intimations Ode, it's the its full title is Ode, colon, um, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. Um, if there is one poem which is the central poem of English Romanticism, it's that poem. Uh, it's Wordsworth's, it's often simply called The Ode or Wordsworth's Great Ode or The Great Ode. If someone ever says, you know, so did you read The Ode? Um, they mean this. Um, if there's one poem that's central to Romanticism, it's The Ode, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. Um, and it's the poem that... Uh, the later romantics are most obsessed with. Or if that's not quite true, it's, it's, a, it's a close enough approximation to the truth. Um, it says the things that they are most interested about in Wordsworth. Um, it's the kind of poem that you should spend several weeks on, but what we will try to do is actually um, get through it today, which means that we will give it a cursory reading. Um, but before we do it, look at the poem. It should be, um, I think, on the back of your first sheet, but it might be on the second sheet. No, it'll be on the second sheet. The poem Two Wordsworth by Shelley. So this is a sonnet. Shelley hadn't met Wordsworth, I don't think, at the time. Um, what do you have? don't think he'd met him yet when he wrote this sonnet. Um, but he'd been reading what Wordsworth had been writing recently. And what Wordsworth had been writing recently in 1816, both prose and poetry, was pretty disappointing. Um, Wordsworth had become the um, conservative and uh, the conservative uh, stick in the mud who didn't like kids today, didn't like what youth were demanding and what youth was doing, was um, basically thought that radicalism was terrible. It ended up with Wordsworth writing sonnets on the punishment of death, which were a series of sonnets about why the death penalty was a good thing. Um, also sonnets about why um, the secret ballot was a bad thing. Um, people coming and letting people vote in secret, that was really bad because the lower classes might not vote the way they were supposed to if no one knew who they were voting for. So Wordsworth was turning really, really reactionary. And Shelley writes this poem um, when he sees how reactionary Wordsworth is becoming. Shelley is 24 now. Um, and he writes um, this poem to Wordsworth, addressed to him, a sonnet. Poet of nature, thou hast wept to know that things depart which never may return. Childhood, 
and youth, friendship and love's first glow have fled like sweet dreams, leaving thee to mourn. So you wept about these things, that things depart which never may return. And what are those things? Childhood, youth, friendship, love's first glow. They flee like sweet dreams, and they left thee to mourn. So that is what Wordsworth wrote about in his poetry. Not those things, but their departure. Wordsworth's poetry had been about the loss of those things. Wordsworth's poetry had been lamentations for the loss of childhood and youth, friendship and love's first glow, and how they flee like sweet dreams, leaving thee to mourn. These common woes I feel. What does the word common mean there? Yeah. They're shared. Shared. Yeah, how do you know that? You're right, but how do you know that? How do you know that, that it doesn't mean common as in everyday and uninteresting and, oh, how common? How do you know it's, it's not? Do you guys watch Downton Abbey or is that? Yeah, so how do you, how do you know that's not the, 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 the way um, um, the aristocrats would, would say common? Yeah. Because two words, I feel, because you know that he, um, he has the same feeling. Good, good. Kevin, would you mind getting that door? One problem with cuts is the bureaucracy of the registrar's office. I'm sure you love the registrar, but... Um, yeah. Um, it's... Um, if he says he feels it too, he's not putting himself down by saying that he feels it. So these common woes I feel... One loss is mine. So there, mine means something like mine alone. Or one loss is not ours, which would be common, but one loss is mine, which thou too feelst. So these common woes I feel, that is, these woes we have in common I feel, I have seen how childhood and youth and friendship and love's first glow will flee like sweet dreams. I feel them too. Here's another loss, though. Like childhood and youth and friendship and love's first glow, which is mine, you feel it also. So remember he said one loss, these common woes I feel. One loss is mine, which thou too feelst. And there's a little paradox there. It's my loss, but you feel it too. What's the paradox? Yet I alone deplore. So you feel it, but you don't care. You don't deplore it. You feel it, but you don't deplore it, whereas I feel it and do deplore it. For me, it's a loss. You're also feeling that loss, but you don't realize it's a loss. That's what that line is going to turn out to mean. So one loss is mine, which thou too feelst, yet I alone deplore. Thou wert as a lone star whose light did shine on some frail bark in winter's midnight roar. So it's as though 
there was some frail ship, some frail boat, lost at sea in a storm. That's an image that Shelley is going to recur to over and over again before his own death, lost at sea in a storm. One loss is mine, which thou too feels yet I alone deplore. Thou wert as a lone star whose light did shine on some frail bark in winter's midnight roar. Thou hast like to a rock-built refuge stood above the blind and battling multitude. In honored poverty thy voice did weave songs consecrate to truth and liberty. So this is what you used to be like, is what he's saying. You were like a star to the tempest-tossed boat. There he's thinking of um, Shakespeare's sonnet 116, Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Minds Admit Impediment. This used to be a high school staple for memorization. Do people know it? Um, in that sonnet, um, Shakespeare says what love is is like a star that the mariner can look at in the storm and um, take his position from orient himself to. So um, you were like a star whose light did shine even in the midst of midnight's winter's midnight roar. You were like a rock-built refuge, and you stood above the blind and battling multitude who didn't know the truth. You, in honored poverty, you weren't rich. The rich didn't like you. You were part of Occupy the Lake District. In honored poverty, thy voice did weave songs consecrate, that is consecrated, to truth and liberty. You preferred truth and liberty, freedom, to wealth. All of that was true. But that was all in the past. And then we get the last two lines of the sonnet. Deserting these, deserting these things, deserting your status as a star in the storm, as a fort or refuge in battle, as someone who is singing songs consecrated to truth and liberty, despite the poverty that this causes you. Deserting these, thou leavest me to grieve. So I'm left alone to grieve what has happened to you. That's what happened to me. Thou leavest me to grieve, thus having been, that thou shouldst cease to be. So notice what he's saying in the sonnet is, you used to write poems about what all of us feel, that childhood and youth and friendship and love flee from our lives, that life involves the loss of these amazing things. But I have lost something you haven't lost, or at least I am mourning and weeping. Poet of nature, thou hast wept to know in line one. Leavest me to grieve in line 13. Wordsworth isn't weeping, but Shelley is weeping. And what is it that he's weeping about that Wordsworth isn't weeping about? What has he lost? 
and weeping for that Wordsworth does not weep for. That's a question. Yeah, Barbara. Wordsworth, or at least his yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was there were all these things. He becomes conservative, and he he's like all against youth and revolution and all the things he once stood for. And Shelley's basically saying, you know, you went to the thing you hated when you were younger. Yeah. So you don't you don't miss it, but I miss it. And Ex- it's sad. Nice, beautifully put. Yeah, and. There's the implication here is that poetry about loss, the kind of poetry Wordsworth used to write, that itself had very high value. That poetry about loss was the kind of thing that a person could love the way they loved childhood and youth and friendship and love's first glow. That in the list of things that I have lost, Shelley says, are love, youth, friendship, our childhood, youth, friendship, love's first glow, and also Wordsworth. So Wordsworth's poetry had been the kind of thing that mattered to my life, mattered to our lives, as much as these other things that his poetry wrote about. But now he stopped writing that kind of poetry. Now that poetry no longer exists. So the implication here is that poetry of mourning, poetry of lamentation, poetry of weeping, is itself like the things that it mourns. That is something that has the kind of value whose loss it mourns. Loss is sad. Loss makes you weep. Loss makes you grieve. But feeling sad, weeping, grieving, that has its value also as poetry. So notice, I just this is really crucial for why the Romantic poets write poetry. What's so important to them about poetry as a vocation for their lives? It was the Romantics who first would have thought of themselves as poets first and foremost. Sure, people wrote poetry all the way back to Homer. But no one would think what I want to be in my life, what I want to do with my life, is to be a poet. That idea of poetry as a vocation, poetry as what you are most deeply, that's idea that still survives, that strongly survives. That idea is invented by the Romantics. It's not that there weren't other people who thought of themselves first and foremost as poets, but they didn't think of being a poet as something that took your entire life, your entire soul, as the definition of your soul. 
but the Romantics did. So that gives you then, you could say, three levels of an apprehension of life or of the world you live in. The first level is something like childhood and youth and love and friendship. Those are great, and I live among these things, and that makes me happy. And the second level is now I'm a poet lamenting the loss of those things. And that is intense. Loss is something intense. So the first level is I live an intense life, the life of the child where everything is new and everything is wonderful. The second level is those things are fading into the light of common day, as Wordsworth will put it in the Intimations Ode. But I weep that they should fade. They flee like sweet dreams. And this causes me to weep and to grieve. And weeping and grieving are intense. And that's what Wordsworth has said and what Shelley praises him for saying in honored poverty. And then the third level is I no longer weep about those things because I no longer care. And that is not only a loss for Shelley, the way he's describing things, but it's a loss of the very fact that it's a loss. The fact that it's a loss is where poetry comes from. And so the fact of loss has a powerful and shadowed gain attached to it. The fact that it's a loss can itself be flipped into a kind of gain. The loss of happiness becomes the gain of poetry. But Wordsworth, says Shelley, lost not only happiness, but the gain of poetry that that happiness, that the, lo that the loss of that happiness made possible. And now, he's just become a reactionary, uninteresting, unintense bore, a ranter. And that, for Shelley, is the second loss. That's okay. Is that an alarm or was? Yeah, I yeah. guess it's. I don't know how to turn it off. It's been like that for months. <laughs> go to go to clock. I I deleted the whole thing and it just won't turn off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. Well, try to set it for uh, twelve twenty then. That way we'll. <laughs> everyone can look daggers at me when I keep going on. Um. Not that I ever do that, right, Barbara? <laughs> A polite laugh. Um. Okay, so there really, in a nutshell, is something crucial about Romanticism, which is that Romanticism as poetic thinking, because that's really what it is, it's thinking through poems and writing poems through thought. Romanticism attempts to rethink the intensity, the loss of intensity, childhood, youth, love, all those things. We lose them. Romanticism attempts to rethink 
the loss of intensity, which we all experience in our lives, as the intensity of loss. You lost those things. That's really intense. So loss itself becomes a gain, as I say, in intensity because of what's missing. What's missing, the fact that it's missing, can become as powerful as the, as the power you've lost, as the thing that is missing. But when Wordsworth loses that, when the intensity of being a poet departs from him, so that he no longer feels loss as intensity, then you have a loss without a gain. One loss is mine, which thou too feelst, yet I alone deplore. You've lost it, but you don't even know it. And so you don't get any intensity out of that loss. That's what Shelley is saying. So did you want to say something? Is your hand up? Yeah. OK. Um, so now let's look at the poem, Intimations of Immortality, from Re Recollections of Early Childhood. This is Wordsworth pretty much at the peak of his powers. The poem is finished in 1804. It was actually started two years earlier. And um, one reason it took him two years to write the poem seems to take place on a single day, much like James Joyce's Ulysses which also takes place on a single day. Um, the poem seems to take place on a single day, but it took two years for Wordsworth to write. And what happened was he wrote some of it and then couldn't go on and set it aside. And it took him two years to get to the place where he could figure a way out of the impasse. So what year was it written? So it, he first began published? it in 1802. It was first published in 1807, but he began it in 1802 and finished it in 1804. But partly I wanted us to start with Shelley. So, because Shelley does something really um, important and that poets do when what's really important to them are poems, including the great poems of other people, the poems that so blew them away that they became poets. Why would anyone become a poet unless they were already blown away by poetry? That is certainly among the romantics for whom being a poet is their soul's vocation. What that means is that they were blown away by poetry and decided that's what they wanted to do with their souls. And so what a later poet like Shelley will do when he is talking about the poem that changed his life is he'll talk about it in ways that focus your attention on various moments in the earlier poem that for him were crucial to what blew him away about that earlier poem. So famous beginning of the Intimations Ode. Generally, I'm not, this won't be a lecture class, but I, I do want to get the groundwork done. And this poem, as I say, could take a long time to do. How long did we do it in English 11? Do you remember? A long time. <laughs> There was a time, and that's the, those words, that's the poem in a nutshell. There was a time. So 
Things used to be one way, now they're not. That's what Shelley is. De- that's what Shelley's describing when he says, "Poet of nature, thou hast wept to know that things depart which never may return." A fitful and inconstant wind awakens to a transitory brightness. I knew if I didn't think about it, it would come back to me. The mind is a, in creation is as a fading coal that a fitful and inconstant wind awakens to transitory brightness. Okay. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight, to me did seem appareled in celestial light the glory and the freshness of a dream. So what has Shelley picked up from that in the sonnet to Wordsworth? Yeah? Um, Well, he's just like, when Shelley talks about Wordsworth, he says, like, there are all these beautiful things about youth and Uh childhood that you don't see anymore, that, like, you know, everyone loses them, but people feel the loss and you don't. And here he's saying... I used to see things in this beautiful way. Like people always talk about, like a child has such a beautiful view of the world, uh-huh. as opposed to like an adult who sees, you know, the cyn- the cynicism and you know all yeah. that. So he's saying he used to see it, and now he can't. Yeah. But he's not saying that he's sad the way that Shelley's saying that he's sad. Yeah. Although he's he is going to. But you're right. Um, what words in particular do you think struck Shelley, or is Shelley echoing? Sonnet, yeah. He picks up the dream. Yeah, yeah. I fled like sweet dreams, the glory and the freshness of a dream. Also, yeah. common sight. Yeah, common sight. The earth and every common sight. What does he mean by common? Everyday, mundane. Mundane, exactly. The, the earth and, and everyday sights, mundane sights, right. Um, so, common, not as in shared by everyone. Um, but common as in what you can see everywhere. Um, so it's shared by everyone is common as in in common, and what you see that's mundane or everyday, that's the common that Wordsworth means. So there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight, to me, did seem apparelled in celestial light. It all seemed dressed in light, covered with light, vested in celestial light. What does celestial mean there? Yeah, heavenly. Um, coming from another world. Apparelled in celestial light. Coming from the world of dreams, maybe. The glory and the freshness of a dream. And then again, it is not now as it hath been of yore. So once it was like that, but now it isn't. It is not now as it hath been of yore. Turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day... The things which I have seen, I now can see no more. So notice that he's looking for those things. He turns night and day all around, looking for the things which he has seen. Turn wheresoe'er I may feel the desperation in that, or the frustration that everywhere he looks, and he is looking, he can no longer see what he once saw. The things are there, but they're not apparelled in celestial light. Now he sees them as mundane. They were the same things, but not mundane at that former time. Examples. Sorry? Is there the guiding light that Shakespeare was talking about? 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that star is going to come up a little bit later in the poem, too, when he talks about the soul that rises with us, our life's star. So here are some of the things he looks at. The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. Some of you may know Wordsworth's um, lyrical ballad, My Heart Leaps Up. Um, he actually set that, um, I didn't reprint it here, but he set that as an epigraph to the Intimations Ode. It's the poem, My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when I was a boy. So is it now that I am a man. So may it be, so be it when I shall grow old or let me die. The child is father of the man and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. So that's a famous, somewhat earlier poem of Wordsworth's, My Heart Leaps Up. What he says is, when I was a child, I saw a rainbow and my heart leapt up. Now I'm a man and I see a rainbow and my heart leaps up. Let my heart leap up all my life or let me die now. If ever a rainbow doesn't cause my heart to leap up. So he puts that as the epigraph to this poem. And now, he says, turn wheresoever I may, by night or day, the things that I have seen I now can see no more. The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth. That's great. I'm seeing beauty again. He's trying to get himself to ignite. But yet I know where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. So he's trying to feel the, the dazzling, celestial power of those things. And they're beautiful and lovely. Just think of the intended anticlimax of a line like, waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. It's like, you know, the sodas you get in New York are large and medium-sized. Um, there's anticlimax there. He's trying to get it to go somewhere, to feel again what he felt as a child. But turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day, the things that I have seen, which I have seen I now can see no more. There hath passed away a glory from the earth. So, he's going to try again. So one thing to notice about this poem, then, is that it's a poem in which the writing of the poem is an attempt to recover the very thing the, poet is mourn the poem is mourning. Think about how lamentations or elegies, we're going to read, one of the things we're going to read in this class is Shelley's elegy on Keats. Think about how lamentations or elegies work or why they work. Someone has died, and someone writes a poem lamenting and mourning the death of the dead person. Why do they do that? Again, it's feeling something like that person is gone, but I can feel their absence. If I can no longer feel their presence, what I can do is feel their absence. That's, again, the intensity of loss that an elegy aims at. 
And the harder I think and the harder I write in writing this poem about their loss. This is true about poems about loss of love also. They don't have to be that someone has died. They can be, I was so happy until that person left me. And now I'm going to write a poem about my own unhappiness. And writing that poem intensifies the sense of loss, but in a way that also substitutes for the person who's gone. Why else do people write love poems? Sad poems of love, or sad songs of love, you know, which is 90% of what any good rock song is. It's a poem about loss. It's a song about loss. Or 90% of good rock songs is what I mean. Um, if I say Judy wrote the saddest song, will you have any idea what I'm talking about? Yes? All right, good. Do your friends know Bell and Sebastian? No. No, no one knows Bell and Sebastian. Either. All right. Yeah. Uh, do you know the Beatles? Of course. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, there's something about when someone is gone. Thinking hard about that, writing about that, singing about it, makes their goneness all the more intense, but it's as though that intensity is what you get when they're gone. Wallace Stevens has a great line in The Idea of Order at Key West. If you don't know Wallace Stevens, you'll think, what kind of title is that for a poem? Um, if you do know Wallace Stevens, you'll know that Wallace Stevens always has the strangest titles for the greatest poems. Um, the line is, it was her voice that made the sky acutest at its vanishing. So the idea that something is acutest at its vanishing, sharpest, most piercing at the moment that it vanishes. That's what poetry of loss, poetry of lamentation is about. So writing such a poem, which we do, which people have all the way to the beginning of poetry, all the way to the beginning of elegy in antiquity. Writing such poems is somehow hanging on, if not to the person, to the person's absence. Hanging on and trying to intensify that. So the idea of writing a poem to do something, not simply to say, you want to know how I feel? Well, I wrote this little poem. But rather that in writing the poem, you're doing something. You're doing something to your own feeling. You're making your feeling more intense. You're converting loss into intensity. You can already feel Wordsworth trying to do that when he tries to write the poem to recover in the intensity that he's lost. He's not yet turning the intensity, the loss of intensity into the intensity of loss. Rather, he's trying to convince himself that he can recover the things that he's lost, recover the intensity that he's lost. So he tries. Now, while the birds thus sing a joyous song. So the birds are singing. It's a beautiful day. And we can now tell that the poem began by his saying that it's a beautiful day. And yet, it doesn't do much for me. And why should that be? There was a time, you know, imagine, if you were to imagine this as a Shakespearean speech, someone talking, 
what you would say, what you would see on stage is something, or in a movie, is someone looking around and it's a beautiful day and then shaking his head and saying, you know, there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight, to me did seem apparel in celestial light. So it wouldn't be working for him. And that's what the poem begins by registering, that the nature around him isn't working for him. Poet of nature is what Shelley calls him in the first three words of two words worth. But it's not working for him. But now we find out where he is. Birds are singing. Lambs are bounding. Now! Where do we first see the word now? Anyone say quickly? Line six? Is it line six? Yeah, line six. It is not now as it hath been of yore. So you could summarize the first stanza in one word as once. And the second stanza would be once dot dot dot. And the second stanza would be but now dot dot dot. Now we get to, I guess that's really the third stanza. Now, while the birds thus sing a joyous song, they're singing as I write. And while the young lambs bound as to the tabor's sound, while this is all happening, to me alone there came a thought of grief. I was different from all the joy I saw around me. To me alone there came a thought of grief. How does Shelley pick up that to me alone? When he lost his mind. Which? Um, which thou too feelest, yet I alone. Yeah, I alone. So to me alone, there came a thought of grief. Everyone else was happy. Now Shelley is saying, hey, you're one of those happy people now. And I alone feel this loss. So again, he's using very experience that Wordsworth described so well to describe what his loss of Wordsworth feels like. So here Wordsworth says, to me alone there came a thought of grief. And then a timely utterance gave that thought relief, and I again am strong. So I had this thought of grief, but then I said something or wrote something about it. I wrote a poem about grief a timely utterance, where utterance means producing language, expression, linguistic expression. We tend to think of utter as something you do with your voice, and that's mainly true, but it can be writing as well. So here I had this thought of grief, but I wrote something and I felt better. And I again am strong. I wrote a poem, and now I will say how great nature it is. The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. No more shall grief of mine the season wrong. I'm no longer going to mope on this gorgeous, even sublime day with sublime nature around me. I hear the echoes through the mountains throng. Just feel how great this is, this natural description. I hear the echoes through the mountains throng. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep a very famous, mysterious line. But maybe we could say that, no, if they've all fed with the glory and the freshness of a dream, all these things, now they're blowing back to me. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep. 
beautiful line, even if you don't know what it means, even if you're not certain what it means. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep. And all the earth is gay, land and sea give themselves up to jollity, and with the heart of May doth every beast keep holiday. So every animal, every beast, everything is taking joy in nature. And then there's a child there in the midst of all this. And he turns to this child who's playing amongst all this glory. And he says, thou child of joy, shout round me. Let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. So that's the shepherd boy who is taking care of the young lambs at the beginning of the stanza. Now while the birds thus sing a joyous song and while the young lambs bound us to the tabor sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. But now he looks at the child and he says, no, shout, enjoy, let me, take me with you as you take such joy in nature. Because you are at that time in your life in which the earth and every common sight and meadow, grove, and stream seem apparelled in celestial light. So shout, let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. And now he's going to claim, we'll end with this stanza, but you should, in addition to reading Wordsworth, read the rest of this. Now he's going, I mean, in addition to reading Milton, read the rest of this. Now he's going to say, I'm back, ye blessed creatures. How many people have read um, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Coerce poem? Um, there's a, the crucial moment in The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is when the mariner um, sees the sea creatures playing under the um, keel of the ship, and he says, they were just so beautiful. And then he said, surely some saint, oh, happy living forms, no tongue their beauty might declare. Surely some saint took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. So blessing living creatures, blessing these living beings, that's a moment of, I got it back. The celestial light is back for both Wordsworth and Coleridge. So here he says, ye blessed creatures, I have heard the call ye to each other make. I see the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee. My heart is at your festival. My head hath its carnal, the fullness of your bliss. I feel, I feel it all. It's all back. I do feel it. And I know I feel it. One loss is mine, which thou too feelst, says Shelley, and I alone deplore. Getting the word feel again out of the intimations ode. It's really interesting how well he knows that poem and how much he's using it to describe Wordsworth's fall from the intimation zone. But here he says, I feel, I feel it all. Oh, evil day if I were sullen, while earth herself is adorning this sweet May morning and the children are calling on, far, on every side in a thousand valleys far and wide fresh flowers, while the sun shines warm and the babe leaps on his mother's arms, arm. I hear, I hear, with joy I hear. So that should be great. I've gotten it all back. The joy is back. I hear it, I feel it, I see it. It's just great, but. And then he knows he doesn't have it. He's tried and tried. But there's a tree of many, one. A single field which I have looked upon. Both of them speak 
of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? So he really tried, but he looks and he sees that it's not there. Blake, Blake, who had a lot of trouble with Wordsworth, Blake and Blake's editions of Wordsworth, you can, Blake was a great visual artist also, as you will know, in his editions of Wordsworth. There are passages of Wordsworth where Blake, um, at the top of the page, draws just from behind some buttocks, um, bare, assed, on the margin of the page with turds dropping down the page in the margin of Wordsworth's poetry because he thinks it's so, how shall I say, crappy. Um, but here he says, this is the best thing Wordsworth ever wrote, but there's a field, many one, a single tree that I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy, a flower whose name means thought. In French, the word is pensée for both flower and the, and the word thought. They say, no, there's something gone. There's something missing. You can try to convince yourself that you have it, but you don't. And this is where he stopped. He tried in this poem to get it back, and he failed, and he stopped and put the poem away and couldn't continue with it for two years. So this is a serious break that our class is ending on. But we will pretend on Friday. That, uh, we meet again uh, Friday. We will pretend on Friday that it's two years later. Um, okay, so finish reading this poem. Read, if you can, Shelley's Hymn to Intellectual Beauty, which is also part of the handout. And um, read the first two books of Paradise Lost for Friday. I will put those on the latte.